All right. Well, hey guys, welcome this morning here to Red Hill Country Club. We want to thank you for coming. Uh, we do anticipate quite a few more people coming in in between as well, so uh, we're not going to wait any longer. I want to make sure we honor your time. You guys are here on time with it, so uh, good, good stuff. Uh, before we get started, I also want to bring up a couple people if we can. Um, I want to bring up uh, Mr. Ron Romero from wherever he's at. Mr. Ron Romero, come on up. Ron Romero is my right hand uh, in the business and so forth. There's a lot of things that most things I probably wouldn't be able to get done without his support at the office as well. So uh, I want to also put it out there. If there's any customer service requests that you guys would like and have them fulfilled um, before the end of the meeting, uh, please write them down or get uh, grab a hold of Ron. We'll get those and we'll get them printed and brought back to you before the end of uh, today's event. Uh, Mr. Romero, is there anything you would like to add? Go Team Towel Guy. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. I appreciate all you guys. Uh, like some of the clients that we know that we're used to, like John and some people that familiar faces, if we're not familiar with you, as you can see, we're getting your emails, your first and last names. We want to make sure all your contact information is in our database so that we can get everything out to you. So feel free, like Ryan was saying, to get any requests to me right now. We'll get it to you. Thank you, guys. Right on, right on. All right, and Ron, what, which baseball team do you like on those cards? Is there one, or is it a different one? I mean, you're a Raider fan. I'm, talk, I'm a Raider fan. I'm talking to Tom Bernath out there. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan since 1983 because of Ozzie Smith. <laughs> but I'm a West Coast boy, so we got Angels and uh, Dodgers skills for you guys today. So I, I, Thank you. I keep so, up with the local teams too, man. You know, we're just checking. You know, he seems a little bit lost being a Raiders fan and so forth. Sorry, the Raiders fans in here. So, you know. And your football team? Oh, hey, did they win the first round draft pick though? That's the big question, right? So, all right, well, good stuff right there. Um, also, from the back, um, if we can bring up our sponsors, we have a couple sponsors here today. Um, as well with with the the meeting, um, so I want to make sure we give them a chance to come up and say a couple words. Uh, the folks from Clear Level Funding, if you guys would like to uh, come on up and uh, share with us a little bit about what you guys are doing within the marketplace today. Uh, Ethan Roosh, guys, Ethan Roosh. Good morning. Um, we're a local mortgage banking company that specializes in private money. So anything that has equity, we do, um, pretty much. And we've been doing it for 30 years, here locally and in Southern California predominantly. So um, I'd love to talk to you about after afterwards if you have any special needs. We work with people in bankruptcy um, or at, right out of bankruptcy. And um, so this can kind of tie in with what... Um, we're talking about today. Thank you. All right. So, you know, just to keep it compliant, which I need to do and so forth, I can't provide the food and the beverage and so forth within Department of Insurance rules. So it's great to have business partners that want to be a part of it uh, and help make it possible and keep me out of trouble because I don't think I look good behind bars. Um, they do have flyers on the table. A lot of their products are non-traditional products. So um, uh, please check them out. They'll be here all day as well. Uh, also, from the back, I see uh, another one of our sponsors, Miss Madeline Didion from uh, Fidelity Home Warranty. Uh, Miss Madeline, would you like to say a few words? I just want to thank you all for coming and using Fidelity Home Warranty. And don't forget to always add that home warranty policy. Um, it's really important. We take care of your clients after the close of that Thank you. Very cool. Well, Madeline will be here as well. And I think you have some flyers and stuff out in the back. 
Very cool. Thank you so much for your help, your sponsorship, making this event today possible. Um, today we also have from our office, which will be going back and forth with um, our bankruptcy attorney here today, is that our lead guy at the office in the back of the room, Mr. Tom Bernath, our advisory title officer from Tycor Title. And, and who is your baseball team of choice, sir? Embarrassed to say. Okay. You're a Giants fan, maybe? Is that is that what it is? You leave us hanging or what? Oh, I didn't know the Atlanta Braves. He's gonna start tomahawking us here in a minute. You see how this goes? Alright, well, you guys came for some content this morning. You may or may not realize it, or you may or may not have seen it recently. I know we have an escrow officer in the room as well. Um, I'm pretty sure she can vouch for it. It is happening on quite a few transactions where bankruptcy is coming into play. And we want to make sure that we are understanding as to what's going on, how to get through them, that it is not necessarily a deal killer, um, and that you can work through a bankruptcy uh, opportunity. Um, so might as well just turn it right over to the masters themselves. If we can get a thunderous round of applause for our guest speaker today from CKB Vienna, Aruna Rodrigo. Thank you. So, uh, last time we did this seminar, majority or large portion of the content came from our Q and A section. So. I want to make sure that we run through some of the boring substance stuff in the beginning and kind of dive into some of your questions. As long as it's not personal, um, you guys can throw hypotheticals out there. I'm sure you guys run into those situations. We'll address them uh, with Ryan and his staff. I'm sure we can answer most of your questions. Um, as you indicated, I'm from CKBVN. I think some of my partners have presented in the past to you guys regarding family law and probate and other issues. Our office is almost a full-service law firm at Rancho Cucamonga. We practice civil litigation, bankruptcy, family law, and probate. We talk about civil litigation, everything from representing mortgage companies to any other civil dispute and businesses like that. My primary job as a senior counsel is family law and bankruptcy. Um, I've been practicing for nearly 10 years. I have a church doctorate and two masters, and I do enjoy bankruptcy and family law. It does go hand in hand. Um, so as professionals, it's important for all of you to understand the basics of bankruptcy before you can provide any information to your clients, buyers, or sellers. Okay, So I'm going to run through some of those basic things with you. Um, I am going to run through it quite fast. Now, this PowerPoint, I can email to you, so don't get caught up in taking tons of notes. Just let it sort of sink in and say, you know what, Aruna, I had a question. Email me. You will have my cards. My cards are up here. Uh, I didn't get a chance to provide them before, but email me those questions, okay? And then go through the PowerPoint presentation on your later on this afternoon or tomorrow and then let me know what those questions are. I'll be more than happy to chat with you. So when you do contact me, let me know, hey, I, I met you at the, the seminar and I just had a quick question. I'll be more than happy to help you guys. Okay, um, so let, let's start off with the basics. Why do people file bankruptcy? Well, obvious reason is debt. They're trying to get away from it. 
uh, without getting into different chapters that are available, people file bankruptcy to sort of get a brand new start. Uh, the obvious thing and things that you guys have probably seen firsthand is the bankruptcy's ability to just stop foreclosures. It is almost automatic. Um, as soon as you file the bankruptcy, automatic stays goes into effect and it stops everything in its tracks. Okay. Um, eliminate mortgages in more situations. If they're second and third mortgages, you can get rid of those. So we'll talk about that briefly. And the biggest issue when it comes to title is getting rid of judgment liens. Uh, I know we'll go into that in detail, but you guys will, if you haven't already, you will run into a situation where you're trying to close and your seller says, I didn't know this existed. I, it's kind of bizarre. He said, I didn't know this was there. I filed bankruptcy. I thought this was taken care of. If you haven't run into that situation, trust me when I tell you, you'll run into it. Um, it I don't, you're probably not doing your job right if you're not running into it because it's that common in the IE. Okay. Um, private repos, we can stop a lot of that stuff and personal property issues that could address and stop wage garnishments. But as far as the chapters, there are four different chapters in bankruptcy. Uh, the most common one is Chapter 7 bankruptcy, and the other one is Chapter 13. When I say 7, we're talking about getting in and out. You have to qualify. We'll go through that briefly. 13 is a little bit more involved. Uh, best way to look at it is lucky number 7 and unlucky 13. I always say that to people because... You're lucky seven, meaning you're in and out within three or four months. Unlucky 13, you're in that sector for potentially five years, paying back a percentage of your debt over a five-year period to the Chapter 13 trustee, who in turn takes it and pays it to some of their creditors. Okay. Uh, 12, yeah. Hey, uh, just as a reminder, guys, sometimes we need to not so that, um, you know, when you're learning these things, if you haven't already, you can always check in on social media. Share with your database, maybe a nugget here, a nugget there. Maybe they'll pick up the phone and call you and ask you a question that they may not otherwise have asked. So if you see something, maybe you're not to take notes on every specific item that he speaks to, but maybe you post a few nuggets here and there on social media and uh, leverage that power uh, of just throwing out the question. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, with CKV, we've done, like I said, we've done a couple of these seminars. And I tell Ryan that, hey, we want to be like you guys. Whenever an issue comes up, you guys contact us. And part of us doing these presentations to teach you guys where you guys become sort of the mini experts in these, because not because you know it, it's because you know people who you can call that can answer these questions. That power, that tool is priceless. And I know I don't know all the answers, but I know people that know these answers. So I would like to be one of those guides to you, just like myself and Ryan. You guys go out and spread it to your clients that, gosh, I know, I can get you that answer within 10, 15 minutes. I'll call you back. So that what really sets us apart. We're trying to be professionals. Are we doing that extra step going above and beyond for our clientele? And I would like to be that source for you, and you guys can be that source for your clients. So going back, Chapter 12, I've never done. It's very hardly done in California in our district because it's really for farmers and things like that. Uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, you have to qualify for obvious reasons. If you make a million dollars, of course, it's not going to let you get rid of your debt. That's just not fair. Um, so the Cal in, in 
central district, the court uses what's called a means test. I have a small chart I'll show you, depending on the household size, how you can qualify. Um, the biggest thing when you're talking about getting rid of debt, there are different types of debt, obviously, right? You guys are familiar with secured debt. That's anything that's collateralized, like a home loan or car. Obviously, if you get rid of those things, the lender's going to want it back, right? So car, if you try to get rid of your car loan, they're not going to let you keep it. Same thing applies to a house. But on the other hand, unsecured debt is where a creditor gives you or promises uh, something in return, that being money. Um, so credit cards are a very good example of that. Um, some department store cards are still considered unsecured, meaning they're giving you money in return for money. They're not giving you a collateral. In, to a large extent, that debt is dischargeable. So let's say you qualify for Chapter 7. You have $15,000 on a credit card you want to get rid of. Initially, that would seem it's unsecured and it would be dischargeable. Okay, whereas a house, we'll kind of dive into it a little bit, it's secured. So you're not going to get to discharge that. You would have to either reaffirm it or surrender it or maybe get into a loan mod or something along those lines. Um, chapter 7 does allow you that fresh start. That's why I said lucky number seven, you're sort of in and out. Within a matter of months, 120, 190 days, you come out, uh, probably your credit score is going to be better than what it was before. So if you guys have sort of looky-loos people are interested in buying, uh, they said, hey, I just my credit's not there. Those voodoo doctors I see on the side of the road, they can't help me fix my credit. Um, you say, look, let's talk. Let's go look at some houses. Let's get you interested. Let's go start planting that seed so we can talk about this in two years and get you the right people to get you that fresh start. Um, who qualifies for Chapter 7? As I indicated, you have to be under a certain income level to qualify. Uh, we'll talk about some of the things you have to do prior to filing. For example, you have to do a credit counseling class online. In 2005, one of the changes that occurred is too many people are filing and they're not really learning a whole lot. So you go through this credit counseling class to say, look, uh, you need to start learning how to use credit. Um, granted, in our region, people are not filing because they don't know how to use credit because of the mortgage collapse, that sort of issues, it's sort of inevitable. So there's nothing to learn, but nonetheless, you still have to go through the classes. Uh, keeping property, we'll talk about the difference between total liquidation and exemptions, uh, that being Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Even though you get to get rid of your debt, in most cases, it doesn't matter how much you owe. If it's a million dollars, the court will let you get rid of it as long as it's unsecured. But keep in mind, the court's not going to let you keep a Ferrari or keep a million dollars in the bank account and, and let you file bankruptcy. It's just not fair. So that's where these exemptions, you'll hear, was the house exempt? Or was a car exempt? That's what we're sort of alluding to. In California, you have two sets of exemptions. It's called 703 and 704 exemptions. In a nutshell, if you own a home, you do what's called a 704 exemption, which you guys commonly know as um, the homestead declaration. And it varies quite a bit. And if you are a certain age, it's declared and... Um, sometimes you can have non-declared homesteads on a home. If you don't own a home, you do what's called a 703 exemption, basically saying, look, 
I don't have a home, but I have cars that has equity or bank accounts, uh, other things up to about $26,000, $27,000 worth of assets. So a good way to look at it is if you walk into a bankruptcy court in a Chapter 7 and you have $30,000 worth of assets and you're only allowed to keep twenty-seven, the court's going to say, you owe me 3000 so a lot of times people say, oh, glad to give you my 3000 so I can get rid of $200,000 worth of debt. So the trustee, in turn, takes that unexempt portion, which would be 3000 and sort of divides it up among the creditors. There's a, a pecking order when it comes to these creditors, but in large part, everybody gets paid something. Okay? The means test, as I indicated, uh, household of one right now can cl- make close to about 50000 gross. Um, household of two, a little bit over, a little bit under 70000 so on and so forth. There is, under the U.S. Trustees Program, there, there's a link that you can uh, maybe forward to your clients. You can go online and find out exactly what these means test requirements are for filing Chapter 7. Um, the exemptions part, we kind of went through this. It's important that you know when it comes to valuing property, especially real estate, at the time you file, that's when the court has jurisdiction, meaning that's the only date the court really cares about. So when you're looking at the value of a home, the court looks at the value at time of filing. Okay. Uh, chapter 7 timeline, it's tiny, no way are you going to read this, but basically from the time you take your class until you get a discharge, it's about 120, 190 days. You do have to go to court. Uh, that process, you guys will m- more likely than not run into it. It's called a 341 hearing. Uh, that's when the trustee examines the debtor and their financials. So the debtors are required to submit their tax returns to the hearing. This is very small, but like I said, I promise um, if you guys want these uh, printed out or PDF, I'll email it to you. Now, Chapter 7 is the most common chapter. A lot of times people will come in and say, I want to file bankruptcy. We'll say, well, more likely than not, you'll qualify for Chapter 7. Okay. 13 is very different. Chapter 13 is sort of a restructured payment plan. There are multiple reasons why somebody would do a 13. The obvious reason is you just don't qualify for 7. But 13 has been a great tool for a lot of people, especially homeowners where they have fallen behind on their mortgages and there's an impending foreclosure, there's an NOD maybe recorded. So the court will, in a Chapter 13, allow you to pay back your mortgage arrears over a five-year plan, which is pretty neat if you think about it, where the bankruptcy court orders the lender to stop the foreclosure proceedings, get you into the 13 and say, you need to pay X amount of extra money on top of your regular mortgage to bring it current. Um, a lender is not going to do that for you. They're probably going to charge you interest and say the best we can do is put it on the back of the loan, but they're not going to let you pay it without interest. So the 13 is one of those situations where you might be able to file 7, but you still elect to file 13 because you really want the benefit of repaying arrears. Okay? Um, one of the caveats for Chapter 13 is you have to have regular income because you have to fund what's called the Chapter 13 plan. Okay, um, The Chapter 13 plan is exactly what it sounds like. It's your plan and how you're going to repay your creditors over a five-year period. Um, when you talk about repaying, what you're really talking about is 
disposable monthly income. Okay, so a good way to think of that is saying, well, why the heck would I get into a 13 if I can already pay my creditors? But the question is, can you pay what they want? They want interest, they want late fees, but in a chapter 13, the court will say, it doesn't matter what you owe. Only thing that matters is how much do you have left over and how much can you afford to pay? Okay, it's sort of an equitable argument. We're saying, we're not letting you get rid of this thing, but tell us what you can afford to pay. That's what that plan is about. A lot of times in the arrears, when you have a mortgage arrears, you tell the mortgage lender and the trustee that I will pay you X amount of money for the next five years to bring you current. And that's the only thing they're looking for in the Chapter 13 plan. It could be that, you know, based on your disposable income, you only have to do a 5% plan, meaning all total debt over the six-year or five-year period, you're only paying 5% of it back. That's the unsecured portion of it, okay? Uh, there are some limits as to who can file. Obviously, if you have assets, um, strike that. There's no asset limitation, but there is a debt limitation. If you have secured debt over $1.2 million, the court will not allow you to file Chapter 13. You're talking about a Chapter 11. Secured, unsecured debt, if you have it over nearly 400000 the court won't allow you to file Chapter 13. But these are sort of irrelevant nuances that I don't expect you guys to remember, but just know when somebody's talking about it and you know they own assets, they're talking about a 13. You say, you know what, I remember that. You might want to talk to somebody. Let me get you in the right people or let me get that answer for you. Okay, Because there is sort of a, a line we all walk, whether we're giving legal advice or legal information. You call me and said, hey, this is my situation. Can you give me legal information, which in turn I can pass it on to my clients? Not a problem with that. As a non-lawyer, you guys can le give legal information. It's all about who you know and whether you can be a, a resource tool for your clients. Okay. Um, Payments to creditors through the plan, like I said, each month you make the Chapter 13 plan payment, and the court in turn sends out those payments. Um, there, there is a situation where you can dispute some of your claims. So a good example of this is when you file your Chapter 13. If you're telling the bankruptcy court you owe 20000 to B of A, but B of A comes back and say, oh no, you owe me 40000 there's obviously a dispute. The court's not going to pay it based on what B of A indicated. So the court says, B of A, you need to prove how much is actually owed. So that's that dispute process. You guys, uh, even personally, we've had these situations where creditors are just out of control. They don't know what they're doing. And a lot of times that's what really screws up somebody's credit. When you guys are trying to help somebody buy a home, they're saying, this is I don't owe this debt. You might be able to just contact the credit reporting agencies to resolve it, but most of the time you have to go into sort of a 13 to resolve it. Uh, but the court does allow you to dispute that debt. Um, ability to modify a plan payment, you know, one thing I usually tell debtors is the Chapter 13 is a five-year plan. Nobody has a crystal ball to say in fourth year you're going to be making x amount of money and whether your your uh, house is going to leak and you need additional money to fix the leak or your car is broken so for that purpose the court always allows you in a chapter 13 to modify the plan they'll say 
come in with the modification request and we'll see if we can modify it during the chapter 13 process. So uh, nobody's really stuck on a 13 for the entire five years. Okay. Keeping property, unlike a chapter thir- seven where we uh, usually describe it as a liquidation chapter, 13, the court doesn't care what you have. They don't want anything you have. Because remember, the promise is that these folks, these creditors are going to be made whole in some form over the five-year period. For that reason, the bankruptcy trustee and the court's going to say, I don't care that you have a house paid off. I don't care that you have $50,000 in the bank account. I don't care about your classic car. None of that is really relevant because remember, the promise is I'm going to pay you over the five-year period. But keep in mind that if your exemptions are not enough to cover all your assets, the bankruptcy court's going to require you to possibly pay a 100% plan. So remember I initially said your monthly income is what determines a Chapter 13 plan, but guess what? If you have a million-dollar home that's paid off, the court's going to say, well, you're not going to do a 5% plan. You have to do a 100% plan, or we're going in to take that million-dollar home. Well, if you take a sort of a step back it's sort of equitable they're not forcing you to sell they're simply saying we'll give you time no interest pay it back you got five years okay um second mortgages and other liens in a chapter 13 is one of the biggest benefits i can't tell you how many i've done during the downturn in chapter 13 bankruptcy the court will allow you to eliminate second third whatever mortgages if the market value of your home is lower than the principal mortgage owed on the home in other words at the time you file your chapter 13 bankruptcy case if your house sells for less than what the first mortgage is owed the court will say all these other liens and mortgages can be stripped it's pretty big if you guys think about that. I've had clients who get rid of second mortgages in hundreds, two hundred thousands of dollars because mortgage values, the property values have gone down. Those inflated first mortgages are just up there. The court's going to say, I'm going to value the house at 200000 I understand the first mortgage is 300000 The court's going to say, only person that should stick around after your Chapter 13 is that first mortgage. That's huge. So you're getting, that's the biggest reason why a lot of people file 13s. Uh, right now, you see sort of a equilibrium in the market. So some of these mortgages have already been modified. So a lot of people come in or they get new loans. You're not always having that ability. Yes? HELOCs, yeah, absolutely. The, any lines of credit, second, you know, anything that requires a deed of trust that's being recorded on the property and it's uh, sort of um, below the first mortgage, absolutely. Yeah. How does the court determine the value of the property? That's a good question. So you have to, under the evidence code, the debtors can always testify to the value of a home. Okay. Now, the question is whether that's reliable. A lot of times, people, for this exact reason, they don't know what they're talking about. They're going to go on Zillow and say, my neighbor sold it for X amount. So over the years, even though the evidence code allows somebody to testify to the value of their own property, it's not very reliable. So the courts usually say, bring in an appraiser. 
to come in and tell me what this property is worth, date of filing. So it, once you do date of filing, the court will tell the lender, the first mortgage lender, hey, you have a first crack at disputing their value. If they don't dispute it, the court makes a finding that that property is worth what the appraiser has indicated. And it's stuck during that five-year period. So you have to have a declaration from an appraiser. A lot of times appraisers are asked to do retroactive appraisals going back to resolve some issues. But um, that's how the property is valued. Okay? So there are some nuances to the lien stripping, but... The gist of it is, if the mortgage exceeds the fair market value of your home, there's a very good chance that the second, thirds, or other subsequent liens can be avoided. Okay, So you'll hear the verbiage avoided, lien stripping, or anything along those lines. That's what people are referring to. Or you'll sometimes get people coming in and say, well, I filed Chapter 7. I don't know why my second mortgage wasn't removed. Well, because you can't do it in a 7. So those trigger words of lien stripping, avoiding, you know that your buyer or somebody has filed a 13, not a 7. The court doesn't have that jurisdiction under a 7. Okay? Uh, timeline on a 13 is very different. It's, you're on that sucker for five years. Okay? There are situations you can do a 36-month plan, meaning you do it for three years or five years. That three-year is usually limited for people who qualify for Chapter 7, meaning your income is below the means test, so the court sometimes allows you to do a three-year plan. I've had in the past um, individuals strip second and third liens under a three-year plan, but the courts have been more unwilling to do that on a three-year plan. They usually want you to push it to a five-year plan. Okay. Uh, impact and ownership on a Chapter 13 and 7 if you are current on your mortgage, there's zero impact. Now, whether that's the same analysis, if you have equity, that's sort of a different issue. We kind of talked about exemptions, right? If you're current on your mortgage, there's no impact. The impact you get from filing is whether you have too much equity or not. If you're behind on your mortgage in a Chapter 7, if you don't resolve the arrears, you will lose your home in a Chapter 7. Now, a lot of times you think, why would somebody file Chapter 7 bankruptcy if they know foreclosure is imminent? Well, it could be that there's some other debt or somebody has you know, informed them that we are a deficiency state when we're really not a deficiency state, meaning if it's your primary residence, uh, the lender can't come after you for the difference, You know that nuanced part of it. Or it could be that it's a rental property and anti-deficiency statute doesn't really apply in those rental investment properties. So most of the time, people file seven impending foreclosure to stop the foreclosure to see if they can maybe trigger some federal or state program for loan mod. Um, in a 13, you know that if you're behind, you can propose to pay it back over the five-year period. Okay. Now, when we're talking about keeping a property in a Chapter 13, once again, the same analysis applies in that if you're current, nobody cares. The trustees only care if you have equity. And in a 13, if you have equity, as long as you're willing to pay back 
some amount to the creditors, a lot of times the court will say, that's fine. We don't have a concern about that. Uh, Post-discharge stuff. This is where you guys will always be contacted. Um, post The word discharge comes once you successfully complete the plan or the Chapter 7 process. The discharge in itself means that the court has ordered all of your unsecured creditors to go away. Now, once the discharge has been issued, the bankruptcy court allows, during the life of the debtor, jurisdiction to go reopen it if you have to resolve issues. Okay? Uh, this happens quite often when somebody files Chapter 7, they have uh, a credit card debt owed to Citibank, they know there's a pending litigation, they know that there's a judgment issued, but they're not too sure on the title issue, whether an abstract judgment has been recorded on the home or not. Uh, a good attorney will go in and say, hey, I need you to pull your title stuff, I need to look to see if there's any... Uh, clouds on title from these judgment creditors because we have to take an additional step to have those avoided. Okay, that's uh, hopefully we'll talk about that once we're done from title perspective, how we get rid of some of those um, pesky issues when it's clouding title. So going back, a buyer will come to you and say, I filed bankruptcy, but hey, look, there's a lien that's here. I thought it was part of the bankruptcy. The bankruptcy court allows you to go back in time, 10 years, 15, 20 years, to go back in time to fix that issue. You file a motion to reopen, and you go in to remove the lien on the home. It's not always a lien on the home. As you guys know, creditors can just throw out a lien, an abstract judgment, it just sticks to you in the county. It just sticks to sort of floating on, on air until you get property, then it attaches. Those types of judgments or abstract judgment can also prevent your, one of your buyers or sellers from doing what they need to do with you. So the bankruptcy quarter also allows you to get rid of those floating judgments as well because it's not really attached to a specific property. Okay? Um, it's also important to know that it doesn't matter where these liens are. Bankruptcy is federal law, not state law. So if you file in Riverside Bankruptcy Court because you live in San Bernardino County, but you have a lien because you own a joint property with your brother or mom in San Jose, the court in Riverside has jurisdiction to order San Jose County Recorder's Office to fix that title issue. So whenever somebody contacts you, don't think similar to the superior courts, state courts that were limited to a jurisdiction. The bankruptcy court has broad jurisdiction in the United States. So I've done lien stripping in other states when people have assets as well. Okay. Um, omitted creditors. This happens once again when somebody's trying to buy a house. Title. I mean, during the the qualification process, an old debt shows up. Uh, you know that the debtor has filed bankruptcy. How do you fix it? You may have to reopen the case and to include the omitted creditor, as it's referred to. Um, now, there are some nuanced stuff. If the, credit, if the debtor had some assets that the trustee liquidated for the benefit of the creditor, it may throw a wrench in there. But 9 out of 10, that's not an issue at all. Yeah? I just want to kind of draw a lot of attention to this part of it right here, uh, because this is probably the number one thing we're seeing right now. Uh, and you got people coming in and doing these items, and they're like, oh, look, it's been discharged, it's been discharged. 
However, it's it's still on the property, and in the second bullet point, it's on there where it says motion to avoid lien has not been uh, recorded. Only the personal responsibility is gone. So, uh, and I don't know, Tom, if you want to interject. Well, you know, the motion you actually need an order uh, to record the county records um, to remove or avoid that lien on the property. But yeah, this is an area where we're definitely seeing a lot of uh, questions come up because. As you mentioned, people think I listed it, it's dischargeable, I got my discharge, everything's great. Uh, two years later, they go to sell and they find out this lien has been secured because it's recorded in the county records. Uh, and now they're faced with having to either talk to the creditor to see if the creditor will be willing to remove it voluntarily or go through this process to motion the court to reopen the case, then motion the court to get the order of avoidance and then get the order of avoidance to record. Yeah, this is an area that we're seeing a lot come up because of that, uh, where it's not being checked while they're while they're going through the bankruptcy process. So, so you seen that our report is if you have a property that's listed and you've heard that there's a BPA on it previously, uh, don't wait to open the prelim and get the work started on it. Uh, let's open it on day one. Once you take the listing, you start investing in it with you. Uh, get whatever documentation in you can so we can start doing the research because uh, it's easier to get the stuff done at the start of a transaction than when you have something that wants to buy and close in 21 days. So it's a big deal. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. As far as the timeline is concerned, yes? So once, the, um, once you receive the judgment, how long does it take? Say there's no other liens on it or it's all been uh, removed. How long does it take then to get the final completion or close? Are you talking about the, the bankruptcy discharge itself? The, a 13 is five years, right? So from the time you file your Chapter 13 until you get a discharge of a 13, it's five years. Okay. If you paid off the loan early. If you, and you pay the... the discharge that been right. So when you say, if you complete your plan early, there are situations where people will say, I'm tired of doing this for five years. You can get a payoff amount from the trustee. And a lot of times people dive into their 401ks or do a hardship on their retirement if they allow it, and you go in and you get an early discharge, absolutely. But once again, the bottom line is as long as trustees get that percentage early or late, doesn't matter. During that five-year period, you can get out of those early. What's the motion you have to do in order to get that judgment? It's been filed, been Right, so this is what this is what we're discussing now. So let me walk through a scenario with you, okay? A debtor files Chapter 7 not knowing that there is a judgment lien, okay? So when we talk about a judgment lien or creditor liens, those are very different. That should identify that that debt was from unsecured credit, right? We know that because otherwise if it's secured debt, they would have foreclosed on the property. So those judgment creditors, judgment liens should signify to you that it's from an unsecured debt. So they file a Chapter 7 without knowing there's a judgment lien on the property. Five years later, they are ready to buy okay, uh, or ready to sell the home. And that time, it's identified that there is a judgment lien on the property. The seller says, oh my God, I need to get rid of this now. What do you do? you have to file a motion to reopen. You can't jump to this motion to avoid lien. A lot of people think, oh, I saw it online. 
And all I need to do is just file the motion to avoid lien. You can't. You're forgetting that your bankruptcy case has been closed. It's been discharged. Even though I said the, the federal bankruptcy courts have sort of continuing jurisdiction, doesn't mean that it's always open. They don't just sit there waiting for you to do stuff. So the court will say, it's closed. Come back, reopen it. Then we'll let you file the motion to avoid the lien. So that time frame is very important. So as Ryan said, if you're doing a short escrow, anything less than 30, 35 days, uh, you're talking about a very small time window to do this. The motion to reopen can be filed sort of same day could be done, okay? But the court has a due process requirement of 14 days. Basically, everybody has an opportunity to object within 14 days. That's basic due process, right? Because a creditor needs to know, hey, if you're coming in, opening, doing stuff that's going to affect my debt you owed me, I need to know. Majority of the time, they don't care, but the court says 14 days. After that 14 days, the court has seven days to approve your order. So you're talking about 21 days just for the motion to reopen. And we add another 21 days to the motion to avoid lien. You're talking about almost... A, you know, a month and a half, two months of work that you have to do. So when Ryan mentioned get on top of these things early, it does help because I usually get loan officers, escrow folks calling say, hey, Rina, where, what's going on? I said, the process has to take its course. I can't short term any of those due process requirements. Yes. Can you repeat that again? Sure. I want to make sure we talk about that. That's huge. So the, the, timeline. Down the timeline. On that? Sure. This is coming down. This is a huge key point. If you're going to write a top part down, write this down. Please. Yeah, so the time requirement. In order, to, in order for the court to approve a motion to reopen, federal civil procedure rules require at least 14-day notice. The court does not require you to have a hearing. The court requires you to have at least 14-day notice. In that, after you file a motion to reopen, we have to file what's called an order reopening. Remember, there's a motion, then there's an order. So when we do the motion to reopen, if nobody objects to it, we tell the court in our motion to reopen, Your Honor, we filed a motion. It was properly served. 14 days have lapsed. Give us what we want. That's 14 days. And that seven-day requirement for the court to approve our order, you got, I mean, we would all like to think judges would be sitting around waiting for our orders to come by. It doesn't work that way. They have seven days to approve it. We do a lot of these things electronically. We submit, submit the order electronically, and the judge and the law clerk, they have seven days to approve that thing. So that's 14 plus 7. So you're talking about at least 21 days for your motion to reopen to go through. Soon as you get the order to reopen, that's when you file the motion to avoid the lien. Okay. Yeah. Uh, quick question. Uh, you know, this is post discharge, so is there a window period uh, from the time you discharge to like the statute of limitations? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. The statute of limitation. Really, it's, it's sort of a defense for uh, the debtor, right? You're saying, it's too late, don't come after me. What you're really referring to, it's called latches. It's, it's called 
a doctrine of latches. It means too much time has gone by. It's just unfair for you to come back and reopen. Remember what I mentioned, the bankruptcy courts have continuing jurisdiction. Case law says a debtor can always go back and reopen their bankruptcy case to fix something. So the, the answer to that is no, there's really no set time. But uh, keep in mind that if it's 20, 30 years, the court's going to say, yeah, no, latches definitely apply because creditor is prejudiced by your failure to do something, which is not statute of limitation, but it's the doctrine of latches. Okay, so yes, rule of thumb is there can be if it's extreme. But you and I both know if somebody's sitting on something for 20 years, you're either lazy or just you don't care. Nothing's going to happen. On it. Yeah, that's the common part is people are waiting for equity to build, then they're selling, right? And it usually takes about four or five years. Um, the oldest one I've done was, I want to say, early ni- 1990s. But we have to have a retroactive appraisal done if it wasn't done in the past. Yes? You don't need anything because in your scenario, you're saying there's nothing to avoid, right? Yeah, it's been, the discharge has been... Oh, so the discharge has been issued by the bankruptcy court saying you, the debtor, is are now entitled to a discharge. That discharge notice goes out to all your creditors, and that's done. The issue is done. There's nothing you have to do additional unless there's... Uh, well, of course, it, after the discharge is issued, within seven days, the court will close their case in sort of an administrative process. But it doesn't mean a whole lot when a debtor is there saying, "I was my debt discharged? Yeah, you no longer owe the debt. Yes, you do in some scenarios say we need the co- case to be closed, uh, meaning that we know there's no pending litigation coming up. Is it recorded with – well, rec- the recording part only takes with the county recorder's office. That verbiage is only for the, the, the county recorder's office. The bankruptcy notice of discharge and the notice of case closed gets issued to what's called a PACER online system. Yes? I, I think maybe you know, she's talking about the time that the court discharges, what's the timeline that it gets into the recorders? And I have a second question. Are we talking about what is the structure that the bankruptcy is recorded or whatever? The creditors are responsible to show that that's, we run into it on the credit reports too. This lien or judgment has been satisfied. Either the borrower's paid it, but it hasn't been recorded. We got to go back to that. Plus, what structure is used for the bankruptcy court that all these judgments and liens in title records and in credit records, when, what's the responsibility that those actually get? Files, so they are discharged, and, and they do show that they're paid. So, first question. Um, well, let's start backwards. So, the court doesn't have a responsibility. It's the debtor that has a responsibility, right? So, once you are filing the bankruptcy, debtors are required to go through their credit report, include all of the debt they owe. It's very common that a debtor will not know that there is an outstanding judgment. It happens all the time. Just because there's a judgment doesn't mean that it was recorded, right? There is a distinction between the two. Remember, 
If I'm Bank of America, I sue you. I get a judgment. I can sit on my judgment, renew this sucker every eight years, and get interest on it. Never record it. The step of me wanting to attach it to a property is this abstract of judgment part. So you got to remember it as being two different steps. If I am owed money, I can just go to small claims and get a judgment against you and not sit on that sucker for eight years. But if I really want to be aggressive and go after you, I'm going to say, you know what? You live in San Bernardino County. It's very likely you'll own property. Then I take that added step of filing an abstract judgment with, with the court and the county recorder's office. So if that happens, then we have to do a judgment lien to avoid it. But is, if there is a judgment from a courthouse, you don't. all you need to do is make sure that original creditor was included in the Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And as long as that original creditor is included in the original bankruptcy, it's dischargeable. Are, are you saying it automatically goes through the structure on credit reports and the structure automatically goes into title records if these things are paid and discharged by the bankruptcy? No. If this stuff shows up, then it's still open. It's never been You're right. It, nothing, hap- nothing happens automatically. It's the duty of the debtor, once you get a discharge, to monitor your credit report. So you, once you get a discharge, you notice that there's a lien, that there's a judgment, hey, I included that in bankruptcy. You need to notify the creditor and the, reporting, the credit reporting agency, say, hey, this debt was discharged. Why is it still showing up on my credit report? Then they will make corrections. They'll say, send me the discharge notice. We can make those corrections. But if you wait until you know trying to qualify for a loan. There's no link between the court saying that the bankruptcy has been discharged, that that information goes to title records and goes to the uh, credit bureaus. Yeah, absolutely. There is, right? There has to be a system where it goes in. So when we're running credit reports and we're running title reports, and, and this lien should have been paid through the bankruptcy, we gotta, we got to research that. You would think logically that would make sense. The answer is no. No. <laughs> Only thing you're going. That's why the poor consumer says, "Oh no, I paid that through the bankruptcy. That shouldn't be a problem." Huh? Sure, but if you think about it's the creditors. To me, it's the creditors' responsibility to file that that has been discharged. Oh yeah. They no longer. They no longer have that debt that they can collect. You're absolutely right. It has right. to be recorded that it's paid and discharged in some way, shape, or form. Well, it's you're, going to be listed on your full bankruptcy paperwork. The creditors. But yeah, you, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The, in a, the consumer has his bankruptcy papers say, I listed this creditor. We're not arguing that fact. Yeah. But that creditor is still showing that it's either open. If it's a second lien, it could be still on the title report, and, and we have to go back you're, to the You're absolutely right. There should be... I've run into that problem many times. You're absolutely right. There should be a link between... Or there should be a set of responsibilities that the right. creditors have once they know this debt has been discharged. Let me give you even more of an outrageous situation in the title lien part, okay? This happened recently where Chapter 7's filed. Debtor didn't know that there was a judgment lien on the property. We file during the sale of the process. Title finds out that this debt was included in the bankruptcy, but the judgment creditor's attorney will say, I'm not enforcing it because they know they can't because the bankruptcy court has already ordered them say, you can't enforce it. But we still have to go through these steps and process of filing a motion to avoid lien. And what we just heard that 
infamous order you need. It's not just a motion. It's called a 522F order. You need that specific order. Without it, title guys can't remove it. It needs to be there. It needs to be recorded on the property. So you talk about a, a creditor who's standing on the sideline, sort of knowing exactly what's happening, putting these poor folks through this, where they could have simply said, you know what? I'll withdraw my lien. I will gladly go in, pay my, my runner to go record it with the county to withdraw my lien. Has that ever happened? No. No. Zero times. So that's why. I mean, if, that, if they were willing to do that, I think we would have it. Or if the courts required them to do it, I think we would have it. But keep in mind that um, when it comes to credit, there's a lot of lobbying power, and the courts do tell them. Courts don't make up the law. Lawmakers do. They say, look, we can't put the onus always on you because you as a business have already extended money to these folks who are kind of walking away from not paying you. So you're talking about a society where people have responsibility. They're saying, forget you. You already reneged on your responsibility. Why should I go and pay my guys money to do it? So I, I, I agree that we all have had customers who paid a, a judgment that they never got the satisfaction and it took the yeah. time to go down and get it recorded so the creditor's not going to do it. And right. they, that's their responsibility right. to do that. I agree. Right. In that area. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. The bankruptcy process can be streamlined. It could be more effective. It would make your lives easier. Yeah, it would make the title guys. But it doesn't. Life doesn't work that way, but it's not logical. We run into these problems yeah. a lot. Yes. I was told that um, when the discharge was done, that the court still needed to file. That's what I was asking. How long does it take to file that it is completed? Because title really can't record it. You said, you're talking about sending notice to the creditors? And oh, yeah, this is a 13. They paid it in full. Right. And so uh, they're wanting it to stay, not just, just discharge, it's been fully discharged, but they want it to stay completed or closed. Right, so that process requires them filing what's called an application for discharge. Okay, once you file the application for discharge, the bankruptcy court will issue your discharge. Then within seven days, the court will close the case out. So if there's a disconnect between the debtors actually getting a discharge, but the case being open, it could be just a matter of a phone call to the court clerk, the judge's clerk, to resolve it. I have to tell you, I practice a lot in San Bernardino and Riverside uh, civil courts, family law courts, and federal courts. The federal court clerks, staff, they are the nicest people you will ever meet. I don't. It's sort of like DMV and... The AAA, okay, where the staff at the bankruptcy court will give you information. They will literally stay on the phone with you and say, what's the issue? What's the case number? I'll help you. So if you have a client who has this sort of obscure situation, you go to the Riverside Bankruptcy Court website, find out the last two digits of the case number. It usually references, it's a two-letter number, um, two letters and it references the judge. For example, if there's a WJ, it means Wayne Johnson. Or if it's MJ, it's Meredith Jury. You guys are all heard of Meredith Jury. That's the judge who does the San Bernardino City Bankruptcy, right? So you look up who the judge is and you say, okay, who's the judge's clerk? And you call them. You guys, I mean, that's a type of powerful information you can have. You say, you know what? 
Forget it. Let me just call. Let me get to the heart of this so I can call Runa and figure out if there's more that we need to do. Well, the thing is they have. They followed up, followed up, and they said, oh, no, you got to wait 15 days. And tomorrow, I guess, is a holiday. Courts are not open, I guess. Yeah. So they have to wait until now, 17. The 17th. But they were told 15 days. You're saying seven days. And they've been well, checking on it. Yeah, so if it's, I don't know what the situation is. I don't know if a discharge, if they're talking about the application for discharge. It's already been filed, the application, and it was discharged. Yeah, so what you would probably need to know is find the judge. You call the judge's clerk, not the downstairs filing clerk. Okay. See, that's the thing. You And the judge's clerk will tell you, oh, this judge wanted this particular box checked or want, the reason why he's doing that is because he thinks that he's waiting for the Chapter 13 trustee to do something. But get to the bottom of it because there's no way there's a blanket rule for all these issues. So find out. And I'll echo your comment about the bankruptcy courts. Uh, it, they are very helpful. Yeah. 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 As for a title standpoint, we like to see the bankruptcy close because that tells us that there are not, there's no other issues that could possibly come up that may cause a problem. Right. Um, but I have called, I have even called the trustees' offices before as well. Uh, to ask them, can you help me out? What's the issue here? And have gotten a level of comfort to move forward. But they are very helpful. Yeah, a lot of people are really reluctant to call the courts because of your experiences with the state courts. Yeah. It's really nothing like that. I, You're surprised when new attorneys like, Wait, I can call? I said, yeah, you can call. They'll actually speak to you. And I was just down in Riverside in right. bankruptcy court because I just did a loan uh, close last month that yeah. we paid off the Chapter 13 bankruptcy early. Okay. But I needed a, a certified copy from the court. Right. And went down to one place that was on the paperwork. She said, no, you have to go to the bankruptcy court. They are very helpful. Yeah, they, they're great, they yeah. So the uh, Right, so just the players in the game, so you, you guys are familiar with, is there is a U.S. trustee, which is a part of the Department of Justice, and they work with the FBI to prosecute bankruptcy crime. The other arm of the U.S. trustee is the panel trustee. So that in each case, there is a trustee that's appointed to administer the estate. So they tend to be CPAs or attorneys. They get appointed. They say, you are fine, Chapter 7. I will have to make sure that everything you own, you're allowed to keep. If they find undisclosed assets, they get a portion of it. So they do come after you pretty aggressively. But the other one is panel trustees and 13s. They're very involved. You're probably talking about, you know, uh, Rod Danielson. His office is right on the corner. You call him; he'll help you. Okay. Um, so I can't stress the importance of this time issue when it comes to reopening and filing the motion to avoid lien. Remember, during the mo- motion to reopen process, during that seven or twenty-one days or so. You, we should be doing, getting the retroactive appraisal. We should be tracking down mortgage statements. We should be already ready to file a motion to avoid lien. So we'll talk about getting everything from your clients to make sure the sale goes smooth. It goes a lot further than that. I know that a lot of, a lot of prudent um, professionals will run credit reports and say, I want to make sure there's nothing that's going to come up. So don't get caught trying to explain to your client why you didn't do something when I think the, the standard in the business should be being proactive. Okay? Uh, but it should never be a deal killer. Uh, I've had 
businesses where people will stipulate to extending escrow just so we can get this issue resolved. I've had people um, say, I'll pay half of your lien so we don't have to be in this process. But the, the, the seller is saying, no, I don't want any of my money going into this because I filed a bankruptcy on this. Okay. Um, now, far as, did you guys have any other questions? Or, yeah. I have a question about Chapter 13. Do you sure. Do a lot of refinancing for people who are in 13? Is there a benefit to not paying off the Chapter 13 um, after a year um, of them proving that they made payments on time? Uh, you know, it's not a matter of proving that you made payments on time. If you are trying to get an early payoff on a Chapter 13, the court really wants to know whether the creditors will be whole, right? Uh, so when somebody comes to you and they say, I'm in a Chapter 13, I really want to finish my 13, you say, well, why? Why is it financially feasible for you to finish it? It could be that they're going to run into some money, they want to refi, they want to restructure their debt outside the Chapter 13. In those situations, it makes sense. Even in some cases, I've had people call me and said, I just want to dismiss this thing. I don't need it anymore. I'm going to refi, get everything back. I'm going to pay these guys out of pocket now. That could happen. But as far as is there a financial benefit to somebody getting an early payoff and a discharge, it could vary a lot. It could be because the Chapter 13 trustees are pretty restrictive. You have to forfeit your tax refunds for the next five years if you're not 100% plan. They need to approve all loans or agreements over $500. So you're thinking you're just walking around and you can do whatever you want. You can't. I mean, remember, bankruptcy is a right, not a privilege. I mean, in that, you have to live through some of these restrictions that the courts put on you. Okay, so if the court says you have to surrender tax refunds, they will dismiss your case if you don't turn over tax refund. So somebody will say, my income has changed quite a bit. I'll get a better benefit. I want to dismiss a 13. That might be financially feasible for them to pay off early or just dismiss altogether. Okay, yes? Um, just for your information, um, FHA will refinance someone that's in the Chapter 13 as long as they of the, the plan. The plan back. So you can be in the middle of it as long as you can support that you pay 75%. Right, you're right. So that's the new, that's probably the industry standard. But let's talk about practically how it affects the bankruptcy. You pay 75% and you want, are you talking about a refi or a purchase? A refi or a purchase. Okay, let's talk about a refi. All of a sudden, you pay 75% and your disposable monthly income was $500 and you're paying a plan payment of $500, you refi and your mortgage drops from $2,000 to $1,500, guess what? It, your disposable monthly income now jumps to $1,000 because your refi helps you save money. So it's not just because you can do it. You have to take a step back and say, well, how the heck will this thing screw up my financial five-year plan? I'm not even going to go into buying. If you're trying to buy in a 13, you can do 75%, but the trustee's going to say, you want a loan of how much? Are you kidding me? You're in a Chapter 13. You're in a 10% plan or 50% plan. You're not buying anything because why are you doing that at the detriment of your creditors? 
So it could be that somebody's at a 75% plan, they're trying to get their ducks in a row. As soon as that 100% comes in, they're ready to say, I'm ready to buy. But I, it's pretty nuanced when you talk about refinancing. Some people say, yeah, maybe to take advantage of a low interest rate, maybe. But I didn't say it was going to be easy. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's not, you're right. It can be done. Uh, but, you know, a lot of things you can do, but you, you should probably think about the consequences financially. Uh, but who knows? Maybe somebody has a horrible interest rate and they're thinking, I'll pay more in my Chapter 13 plan and just take advantage of this low interest rate. So that would make financial sense at that point. Anything else? Yeah. Just going back, you were saying that the first mortgage has to be less than Water right. First, does that also include uh, deficiency balances in the first? Because when these lenders do <coughs> modifications, they throw people into arms, and all of a sudden you have 40, 50, 60,000 of uh, uh, negative amortization, which is still principal owed to the lender. You're right. Um, the court is looking for the total balance owed, owed to the lender. Right. But there are situations you'll see that the mortgage statement doesn't always reflect the actual balance than what the, the deed or a loan mod may say. And trust me, the borrowers are shocked. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, even if it's on their statement, it's like the bottom right-hand corner down over here. Right. And, and they're totally shocked. I don't know that, but oh, yes, you do. Right. Well, you should have known. That's the point. But, you know, in that situation, the trustee and the bankruptcy judge will say, give me your mortgage statement and the loan docs. Right, you have to have both because a lot of times the the mortgage statement itself is done by an incompetent servicer of some some step. They won't know what the original loan indicated. They didn't know if there's any other penalties or late fees of anything. So what you want to do is this is probably the only time in your life you want your first mortgage to be higher than what it is because you were trying to strip a second. So you do need to sort of backtrack and say, let me make sure that. Right. It could be a matter of getting rid of a $150,000 second. <laughs> Counterproductive, but that's how that logic works, really. Okay? Um, anything else that you wanted to t- go over uh, that we just kind of went through for the 7 or 13? One other, one other sure. question. A uh, borrower uses credit card to buy personal property which is tangible. Is that type of a debt discharge is still listed as unsecured? I bought a 60-inch television and I- I bought, a, I bought a quad vehicle to go run around in the dunes. Well, um, yeah, it, it happens all the time. It's secured, even though it's a, a credit card? Right. So one of the things that's important to remember is what's dischargeable in bankruptcy is almost all debt except child support, spouse support, government fines, student loans, and debt incurred fraudulently. That's where that kind of broad aspects there. So people that come in said, hey, I just bought a 60-inch screen on my Best Buy card. I want to discharge a Best Buy card. Trust me, <laughs> Best Buy is going to come and say, you did not just spend $15,000 last week coming in thinking you're going to get to keep the TV. That's just fraud, right? But the other issue is, remember we talked about a difference between a department store card and a credit card. Department store card's not an issue. But let's talk about a situation where somebody uses their 
um, credit card to purchase a Rhino or a Quad. Capital One, I'm, I'm not using that for any other reason because Capital One is notorious. They will go after you. Capital One will track, look back when they get the Chapter 7 notice and say, what large purchases has this debtor made? I don't know, but the rule of thumb has been anything over $3,000, they will look. Because it's one thing for them to write off the debt. It's another thing to, for to be defrauded or to be known as that creditor where everybody can do that to. Because people are talking. They're going to say, hey, I did that to Wells Fargo. You guys should do that right before you file. So Capital One will go through and say, you just bought a $12,000 Rhino. They'll contact the debtor or the attorney and say, I don't care what you do. My debt's not getting discharged. That's where that reaffirmation process comes in. A reaffirmation process is a process where you re-sign for your debt with the creditor to survive the bankruptcy. If you say, no, I'm not going to get into a reaffirmation, come take the quad, you're going to have to play chicken with Capital One because they may come take it. Otherwise, they're going to say, you know what? I don't care. It's not a big deal. I have seen people, uh, have met people that have done exactly that, only to be left with a motorcycle or a rhino without a pink slip. And you think about, what good is that? Because Capital One's not releasing the pink, but they just thought it wasn't cost-effective to hire a repo guy to come out and take this quad or a motorcycle that's been damaged and say, keep it. I don't care what you do with it. But Right, that's the point. Or you'd be lucky if it's the actual quad. But, you know, there are, uh, going back to lawmakers and the clout they have and creditors have, that over-encompassing concept of fraud. If you intentionally incur debt knowing that you can't pay it off, you shouldn't. As a society, that just doesn't work. Uh, We understand that people do it, but shouldn't. Or just look at how much new debt you acquire because you know you're going to go fall back. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a dead giveaway. If somebody is going through this and they lose a job, their credit balance is $300. If it's not for reasonable living expenses, gas, you know, grocery stores, but all of a sudden you take a Princess Cruise trip or you're doing something, the courts can say, well, it's not the court, but it's the creditor who has that responsibility to come into the court and say, hey, you can't do this. And it could be so extreme that the court can bar you from refiling or getting a complete discharge. So that's where we step in and sort of cool it and say, look, creditor, don't tell the court. We'll resolve your issue. We'll get into a reaffirmation. Because if the court finds out and the court finds that you committed fraud, you're talking about all of your debt being non-dischargeable. So a lot of times the creditors do want you to do what's called a reaffirmation agreement because they know that everybody else is gone and your the creditor's debt is the primary debt and they have you on the hook for the next eight years because you can't file again. On yes. Reaffirmation or reinstatement is, is there new loan papers dated or whatever saying that this debt is now still is there a rewrite of the original loan or credit or whatever it's yeah a lot of times. Right, that's exactly what it is. In our district, the bankruptcy courts have said that the creditor and the debtor are free to enter into any new agreement. But 9 out of 10, creditor will say, 
go pound cent. I just want the same terms that you had. So now the debtor is stuck saying, gosh, I just bought a bedroom set for my kids from living spaces. Well, I got to have my kids sleep somewhere. Or, you know, that's the thing. They'll say, same terms. We're not doing it. We're not changing it. But, but there are situations where they'll say, look, uh, you play chicken, say, come get it. And they're going to say, well, living spaces is not in the business of selling you stuff. Well, Fun. I didn't mean change the terms of the loan and the credit or giving them a, a break away. I'm just saying, is, is, is there another paper or something dated to show that this has been reinstated? Yes, that's, that's exactly the reaffirmation the order. Contract. Yeah. So you enter into a new agreement. The prior contract is sort of incorporated into that reaffirmation. Right. So in the event, post-bankruptcy, somebody wants to, a creditor wants to sue a debtor, they have to attach the reaffirmation process and the original loan. You have a question? Right. So going back to your initial concern about a case having to be closed, right? Not the discharge. The reason, no, but I'm trying to tie it in. The reason why we want it closed is so Capital One can't come back and dispute that debt. So when you're talking about a reaffirmation process or fraudulently incurred debt, Title guys are looking for it to have a nice bow. Is saying it's closed because we don't want Capital Back to come, Capital One to come back and reopen it, or file last-minute adversarial proceedings saying that the debtor incurred debt fraudulently. Then all of a sudden, you may get the case closed, but you have an adversarial proceeding that's sort of trailing the case, and you're nothing's going to happen. No, the adversarial process is a very different process. It's sort of where the regular bankruptcy is proceeding. A creditor comes in to dispute their debt. The bankruptcy court doesn't want them disputing that in the bankruptcy form. They ask you to come in and file what's called an adversarial proceeding, takes it into a civil federal litigation part, which usually trails the regular bankruptcy case. So there's nothing where they're restricted by the 14-day due process part. Uh, they can't, however, reopen the bankruptcy to file an adversarial. That's important to know. Creditor has to file that before the discharge and or the close of the case. As sort of the latches or statute of limitation, I guess you can say, if they fail to object to the discharge and their particular debt, that debt is gone. Yeah. It's, it's gone. It's that's, that's the point. That's exactly. Otherwise, what good is filing bankruptcy? All this debt, and they can come back and do whatever you want. Um, yes? Uh, can a borrower or a client who wants to file bankruptcy, if he wants himself to reaffirm or reinstate a certain creditor that's been really good to him or whatever, they can automatically, can they do that in the bankruptcy? Yes. So these guys gave me credit, nobody else did. I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to discharge them. I'm going to keep my credit my home with these people, they, they can just say, I, I want to discharge everybody but this one here? Yes. Yes and no. Um, a good example of this is, seems to resonate with people. I have female clients that will come in and say, I want to get rid of Home Depot, but I love my Victoria's Secret. I want to keep my Victoria's Secret. Uh, do, you th- do you think that... Right. But I get discounts in the mail. I love that. 
But guess what? Home Depot is not going to be happy about that. So yes, you can reaffirm a particular creditor. My advice to them is you better have that debt at zero if you want to do that. Otherwise, it makes no logical sense that you're trying to help this creditor because they've been good to you. Uh, credit unions are a good example. I have clients that will come in and say, gosh, my dad helped me open this when I was a teenager. I really want to have this. I said, if you have late fees, if you owe them money, bring it current. If you reaffirm that after bankruptcy, you run the risk of Home Depot, other creditors who are potentially prejudiced by it, right? They're going to say, why is Victoria's Secret any different than me, Home Depot? Where they they will right they'll dis, they will file an adversarial proceeding with the court to disapprove the reaffirmation. But it, will that ever happen? Very rarely. It, we're talking about the debt has to be significantly higher. You can't. So once you get a discharge, you can't reaffirm it. Yeah, right. 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 You're right. Right. Yeah. That's probably the best. Right. Yeah, so in the past, we used to do what's called uh, redemption or redeeming it. You simply continue to make payments, you don't do anything. But right now, it's recommended that you reaffirm it because. You know, any lender will tell you here the nightmare becomes if you don't reaffirm a home, it doesn't show up on your credit report, and then you have to go back and tell the credit reporting agencies that I've made all my mortgage payments on time. I need you to properly reflect it on the credit report to build my credit. So, a lot of times you'll say, if you can afford it, reaffirm cars, reaffirm your mortgage. With cars, if you don't reaffirm and you continue to make payments, they're going to repo you a car. And I'll tell you why. Even though you're getting paid, if you miss a payment six months after the bankruptcy, Wells Fargo or Chase can't, they'll come and get the car, but they can't go after you for the deficiency because you already had a bankruptcy. The only thing that protects a creditor from going after you in the future is that magical reaffirmation. So this whole concept of paying and retaining no lender's going to let you do that anymore. In the past, they have. It could be that if you owe $1,000 balance on a car, a lender will say, just go off and pay it. We'll send you the pink. Otherwise, they're going to say, no way am I going to put my money on the line because if I have to pay a repo and I have to sell at an auction, I'm not eating that cost because I can't come after you anymore because you didn't reaffirm it. So people are surprised. They say, I'm current. Why do they take it? Because you didn't reaffirm it. It doesn't matter because that's sort of... Well, no, then there's no point of filing bankruptcy. But if you have secured debt or debt, maybe sometimes you use it. Care credit is a good example. You just got dental work and, or whatever else. You don't want to sort of do that to your favorite dentist. You can say, I, I, maybe I want to reaffirm because it's a medical expense. Or I want to reaffirm my car because I need my car. And I want to work towards having a car that's paid off. Um, so... We, you shouldn't take the reaffirmation process lightly, but it is important that you reaffirm it because... How quickly afterwards after the what? You can't do it after the discharge. You have to do a reaffirmation 60 days before your discharge. Okay? That's why the bankruptcy process takes so long. It's, it's about 120 to 190 days. Remember, we're only talking about a Chapter 7. You're not really reaffirming anything in a Chapter 13. Because you, you do it in the Chapter 13 plan. Yes? 
a coroner's bankruptcy is not exempt. In other words, would a bankruptcy trustee or court take all the vehicles for people if they're both working, that they would not be able to exempt it and say, I, I just want, they have four vehicles. They give up the two. I, I need a vehicle for my husband to have to go to work. Um, it depends. Remember, the, the discussion of reaffirmation only applies to secured debt. Exemptions only apply to assets that are paid in full, right? Why would you exempt an asset that's underwater or the lend that the loan is higher than the market value? Right, but I guess going back the other way, if it's all paid off and you have two teenagers and two adults and there's four cars, everybody needs a car, so I can guarantee you that Chapter 7 trustee is not going to care. If it's not protected, nobody cares. You shouldn't file bankruptcy if that's the situation. You need to t get into a long-term plan, figure out how do we get rid of my debt, how do I protect my assets. It's, you know, people, I cringe when I see bankruptcy filings or advertisers of 500 and something come in, get you in and out. I said, oh, you know, in majority of the time, you're right. If you're unemployed, you're, you have nothing, don't pay an attorney to do something, you can probably figure it out. But I cringe when people own homes, there's equity. You're saying, gosh, you're going to look back when the trustee's knocking on your door trying to force sell your house. You're saying, gosh, I should have actually spent the time and money consulting an attorney to figure out, is this going to put me in trouble or is it going to really help me? Okay. Um, anything else you guys want to address, talk about? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I need to talk isolated sure. I need to talk about a situation. I was in a situation where homeless for sale, husband and wife sellers had gone through divorce. I think the wife was trying to file bankruptcy and discharge the note that she took back to the husband and he filed with an attorney blocking the bankruptcy and filed something on title. We could not Get along and that property could not be sold. Yeah, we, we do that all the time. Our, like I said, our firm does <laughs> family law. That, didn't know it, it wasn't on time. It, it, it came up later. It, going, so it's that is a nightmare because when you're talking about when you're talking about screening potential clients, you talk about hey, what changes in your life has occurred? You're talking about a divorce, a bankruptcy. Those are the biggest changes in your life you can think about you're thinking oh my god in the divorce were you ordered to pay or give your estranged spouse equalization payment that's not discharge one of bankruptcy because you can go into bankruptcy court the court's not going to let you discharge that equalization payment and then you're potentially violating a fiduciary duty to your ex-spouse in a family law case the family law attorney can so turn around it's not, it's not it's an equalization payment You're not. Equalization payments are expressly excluded from Chapter 7, Chapter 13 discharge. Same thing applies for. Yeah. Uh, that same thing applies to support obligations, spousal support or child support arrears. You're not getting it. Imagine what would happen if that was the case, but I'm glad it's not. But at the same time, the courts don't allow. Uh, equalization payments. Equalization payments are, if you guys don't know, it's what you pay your ex-spouse to equally divide assets. That is golden. Take a five-year note. Yeah. Pay and the house 
Right. right. It's not going to work. He had a question. Um, is there a downside to reaffirming? Yeah, I would say yes. If I know somebody who is uh, looking at an imminent or impending change in income, they're going to get a reduced income, I would tell them flat out, get rid of this house. There's no point of you reaffirming. Then we get in realtors, say, do a short sale, talk to the trustee to sell this sucker. There's no point of you reaffirming it. But if, you're, if somebody is going to do everything they can to keep that home, you should be reaffirming it. There's no benefit to not reaffirming a home loan. But, you know, there is a nuanced part where you don't have to reaffirm a home. You don't have to. It makes your life a lot easier. I can tell you that. A lot of times I don't approve reaffirmation agreements when people can't afford it. People say, I, I want to keep my home. I said, that's fine. You're on your own. Then they'll have to go to a bankruptcy judge and get permission. So reaffirmation has to be approved by an attorney or the judge. If I know I, you can't afford it, I'm not going to put you in that position. Why? Or if you have a terrible arm, the payments are going to go up. You have a large negative AM. Maybe you want to get out from underneath that. Sure. Then we're talking, about, we're talking about surrendering your home in the first place or getting into something, a refi, get into a seven, and you're saying, I'm going to reaffirm it and then try to see if I can refi or something along those lines. Right. Because remember, if you don't reaffirm it, they're not going to let you refi. Right? They're going to say, well, we can't really come after you for anything, so we need to make sure that we, we the creditor, is secured through this process. But I would say it's very rare that it would be a bad idea to reaffirm, unless you can't afford it. Yes? Um, the easy answer is you just need the financial help. You know, it's, I hate to be that blunt, but when you're talking about putting food on the table or paying, paying Capital One, I think the answer is easy. But if you're talking about more of an uh, intricate situation, you make that five-year plan, you're saying, my kids are going to college, I need the money, i got to get rid of my second, i got to have some equity to pull out so I can help my kids. That's the type of people, and I think, hey, you should be filing bankruptcy. So, like I said, bankruptcy, nobody needs to file it. You've got to just know how to maneuver through it. It can be a very good tool, especially in the IE. You guys probably know a lot of people that have gone through it or are probably impending it. But, yeah, just like good attorneys, there's bad attorneys. So you're going to always get the bad apples, okay? So there are going to be people that's going to ruin it for everyone. I've had people that come in and say, hey, has my eight years been up? I'm like, wow, what did you get into? But, they, but, they, but you know, it's, there are some people that said, my wife had a huge medical bill. Insurance only covered 20%. What do I do now? Uh, $200,000, you see, uh, you know, senior citizens, retired folks coming in, they have no insurance. Bankruptcy is one of the only tools, sadly enough, to get rid of that medical debt. So... Clients probably did three refis in a period of five years, and every time we paid off debt, right? Right. They call me seven, eight years later, and I find out they went through. And they're just good Americans. They're buying consumer goods. They're keeping the economy running. They just went. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, and they're really nice people. They're, they're not trying to 
to live above your means, but they, they just buy things and, and charge up credit cards. You think, you, you think about why the courts require you to do that credit counseling class? It's that same concept. It's... It's just a payment plan. Seven, you're in and out. You file it, you're in and out within 120 days. Thirteen, you're paying it back and you're in it for five years. Is it because you got too much income Yeah, like I said, it's, it's very nuanced. Okay, so I'll get you my handout. Um, I, do you have all the business cards you promised you are going to get me? <laughs> well, I'll get you my card. My card's here. And we do it that way. You guys shoot me an email and then... Um, yeah. If you well, ask any questions. Don't go away, I think I'm just going to wrap it up. Okay, with questions cool. Questions and answers, really, for the most part. I, I think if there's one thing you take away from this presentation is there is somebody you can call to get the answer. I think that's the important thing because this is a pretty complex process and there isn't any quick band-aid for it. So, But I think on, it's, it's good to note that on an order avoiding a second or a third in Chapter 13, that order is not effective until they successfully complete the plan, if they convert to another plan or don't complete it, then the order is all not effective. But one of the things that we do from a title standpoint is, yes, when somebody's in bankruptcy, we have to make sure that the bankruptcy court is okay with whatever they do, in some manner, that they have the right to deal with that asset. Um, and we'll work through that process, and I am always willing and never opposed to calling the attorney, the trustee, or the court to ask questions and help you folks work through this process. Um, but we do look at the bankruptcy in the case of those debts that are recorded, those judgment liens that are recorded. Um, you know, if somebody filed bankruptcy today um, and they had no assets um, and they had a judgment that was recorded, but they didn't own anything when they filed bankruptcy, the judgment is recorded, and then they go and look to five, buy a house five years later, and that judgment still hasn't fallen off by statute. Well, that judgment lien, we look at that as a clean start process. And we'll say we can ignore that judgment lien because they, the creditor wouldn't have the right to attach to that asset because if it was dischargeable, they would be violating violating the discharge order. So we do look at bankruptcies, timing of the bankruptcy, timing of the judgment on the lien or whatever the case might be to kind of help you work through that process. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, know who to call to get the uh, to get the uh, your, your questions answered. I think that's the most important thing because I don't think there's a hard fast easy rule on anything um, when it comes to bankruptcy, especially if somebody wants to sell or take on additional debt and they're in bankruptcy. So they may have to get bankruptcy approval to do that. So in case I didn't put it out there enough, Mr. Tom Burnett is our advisory title officer at the office. He likes when I call him the magic man. Not really, but um, I do it anyways. Uh, because, you know, when it comes down to our business, some of the things is about coming to a level of understanding of what's actually going on in the transaction that allows us to be able to get these things closed. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have him on our team because he helps us guide through those and he's friends with people like Aruna that are able to uh, reach out to and get those answers to help guide and get them through. So please know that it's always about asking questions. It's just like any good relationship and being able to have the open line of communication. Well, can I, can I assume that you all Absolutely. I want you guys, if an issue comes up, I want you to call me. I want you to call Ryan and say, hey, X legal issue came up, and he's going to get you to the right people, and it's going to be our firm. So I want you to utilize the CKB the same way in that 
trust me, it takes five minutes to tell you if I can help you or not. And I'll do that over the phone if you want to come in. It's a free consultation anytime. And I can't tell you how many agents will call me and say, I have a client in this situation. That's the same probate. Because you guys are the representatives and the professionals for these folks. They don't have the time. They expect you to do a lot of this stuff. And it's your job to corral people who are professionals as well and say, look who I have, a team to help you. And absolutely. They get bad information. You cannot make an informed decision. That's where I like to let I think maybe this is a problem. Absolutely. That's the point. There's a lot of information online. It's not always reliable. A lot of it is fake news. They hear it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think you just said fake news. That was fun. Um, yes. So, hey guys, if, uh, if you can, do us a favor. Uh, if you're on social media, you heard today, you like the content, could you please uh, maybe give a shout out or do a recommendation on the Team Title Guy Facebook page? Uh, it's just as easy under Team Title Guy. Uh, also, there's a full list on the events pages to the training classes that we offer each week and each month. If you're ever interested... The registration pages are always on our Team Title Guy um, website as well for the larger events. But if you're on the Team Title Guy page and you click the events button, there'll be a full list of training classes. We do two per week in our office. They're dedicated to their one topic, 45 minutes max. Uh, get you in, get you out. Uh, we want to lead through education. And so um, just want to say thank you so much, Aruna, for coming out today. Are you going to be here a few minutes after? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're here a few minutes after, uh, please uh, come up, see him, say hey, give him your card, because uh, I don't think we grabbed those as much in the beginning coming in uh, as we had thought. Um, and if anybody wants to stay for lunch, there is lunch, but I don't have a lunch sponsor for it, so you're more than welcome. It's a great, beautiful day. You can sit out in the patio uh, if you like, or in here. Um, and also thank you to our sponsors, Clear Level Funding as well as uh, Fidelity Home Warranty uh, for sponsoring the food and beverage here today. So, Tom, thank you as well. Coming out, he'll be here as well for a few moments afterwards if you want to tug on his ear. And uh, TeamTitleGuy.com, we're always here. We'd like to think whether you sell, buy, or refi, specify Team Title Guy. Have a good day, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, my pleasure.